Happy Michaelmas. Happy Michaelmas, I think. What? Sort of. So, <laughs> my parish is St. Michael the Archangel Parish. Yeah. And uh, we had our parish festival uh-huh. last weekend. Yeah. And we, we call it the Michaelmas Festival, even though I think Michaelmas is like in September. I was going to say, I, I think, think it's like like end of September. Yes, uh, September 29th. It doesn't make yeah, any sense. But we change it. But Michaelmas, yeah. is, but that's not the day of Michaelmas. But our festival is in the summer. And so now it's Michaelmas in the summer. But then, but there's no mass. There's no Michael mass. There was. We did do a we, Michael we mass. We did a mass at St. Michael's. Yes. But was and it we a celebration like a... of the feast of St. Michael? You can't do that. Especially we'll do the votive especially, mass. Especially, especially, it was already the feast day of St. Ignatius. That's true. But we did we did a and, votive mass whoa, 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 during the week for Michael. What? No, 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 what? no, 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 no. Because also at the same time, you have to remember, because of the incarnation, we are now higher than the angels. So you've now mm-hmm. allowed a lower creature to usurp a saintly human being in St. Ignatius. No, no, we didn't do it on Sunday, silly goose. Okay. We celebrate, um, you know, regular Sunday mass. But yeah. uh, so our, okay. our parish festival began on Wednesday. It started off with a, a votive mass to St. Michael. Okay, okay, and okay. And we had all the foods okay. and stuff. Okay, and then we ended is, with, this... with a Michaelmas procession on Saturday night. It was lovely. Okay, okay. Um, we took a statue of St. Michael and we ran around the campus with candles and incense and all this delightful stuff. Uh-huh. And I and ate it, a okay. lot of food and I and it was talked a, to a lot of people. And it was a ferial, so you're okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember. See, we got all of our ducks in a row, liturgically speaking. Okay, fine, fine. You're good. All right, sorry. Anyways, okay. how was it? How I was accept it? your apology. Uh, but yeah, you know what? So this is neat because one of the first things I did when I got to my parish was this Michaelmas festival last year. And so it's kind of like my one year anniversary in a way. And it's just uh, really cool that uh, I have like just relationships that uh, have grown in the parish. Uh, I'm feeling much more comfortable there. Uh, and it just it was just really, really nice. Um, the only thing was the weather was super warm. And this is, this is the thing. I, this is my vocation now in the summer. I feel like all I do is read things and sweat. That is, that is what my priestly duty is. Do you to not, read the right do, words do you, and pray them do you not like and the heat? sweat. Do you not like the heat? I don't mind heat. It's just, we, it's just terribly, terribly humid. This sounds like, very un-Italian just, to me. Oh, man. It, it's, it's just inconvenient. Because I have to change my amos like after every mass now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to, like, <laughs> in between masses, See, go change my Why not garments. be like me and just have one mass each day? Because we're a bigger parish <laughs> than your tiny Canadian <laughs> hovel over there. <laughs> be more like me. Yes. Uh, no. We all aspire to be more like you, no, no, Father no, Harrison. No, no. Uh, but uh, let's, let's hear yes. what's going on with you. Um, and this episode of Clearly Speaking. Hi, I'm Father Anthony. I'm Father Harrison. So uh, I am back from mm-hmm. two weeks or 10 days, I guess, in Scotland. I Quickly, I do know that there were some um, listeners in Scotland, I think in the Edinburgh area, who asked to reach out. It didn't. It, the, the schedule was so tight. It was just too yeah. hard to, to do anything extra. And, and I was chaplain to this trip. I they I get a free trip. They deserve all my time. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. That's fair. But it was really cool. Um, we have a bunch of listeners. I, I'm not going to read out the whole list of everyone. I'm not going to read out the names because there were 23 people on the trip total. And, um, you know, I don't. It's just a lot. 
then I don't, that'll take up the entire time here. So, but everyone who was on that trip, God bless you all. Cause uh, you know, being a good podcaster and a good mm-hmm. author, I, I totally shilled both my books and, and I podcast. Nice. I gave out stickers to everyone on the trip. Uh, good so, um, no, it was really cool. Uh, it was it was really fun. It was cool to meet some some listeners came on this trip, which was very uh, neat to talk to them and to yeah. get to know them and you know and just everyone on the trip was re- it was a very uh, we, we, you know I kept on calling it it was pilgrimage light. Yeah, we went to seven distilleries. Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, it sounds like so, so much fun. The thing fun. was, so every distillery, though, we had a tour. And by like the f- yeah. third or fourth distillery, we were like, yes, we get it. You need water, you need yeast, <laughs> and you need malted barley to make scotch. Can and we just go to the tasting? Can we just skip to the tasting, this please? This is kind of what happened towards the end. We are like, what, what, what's unique about your, your distillery? Oh, just this? Okay, great. Talk to us about this. Otherwise, let's just go to the tastings. So, um, so that was really cool. Um, and for me, though, there were two kind of events that um, were really, or two things, or, well, there was a lot. I'm still kind of reflecting on it. But the first one was, I think it was just our second, it was our second day there. We went mm-hmm. to uh, Traquair House, which is the oldest inhabited house in Scotland. It's been in- constantly inhabited for 900 years. Wow. Which is kind of impressive, you know? Yeah. And for the last 500 years, it's been looked after by the Stuart family, S-T-U-A-R-T, which is attached to former kings and queens of the British Isles. Um, hmm. And they are, or were, Jacobites uh, who supported the Stuart line of succession and were also very pro-Catholic. And it was so we this house now is still owned by the laird, uh, which is like their word for lord, who owns the house and the land around it. And so their principal way of income now is touristy stuff. But they still have an active chapel that they have mass there. We we were supposed to say mass there, but I guess the priests are supposed to bring the stuff, and no one told us to bring the stuff for that place, so we oh. didn't bring it. So, <laughs> and the chapel is built right on top of their brewery, which makes fantastic beer. Uh, yeah, Jacobite nice. beer. It was great. Uh, um, <laughs> and the Laird herself gave us the tour. And that mm-hmm. I think that was what was just so touching to me um, because they were a recusant Catholic family, which means that while the Protestant Reformation both, or sorry, the, the Henrician and Elizabethan Reformations were taking over in England, and you had the John Knox Presbyterian, more Calvinist, Lutheran forms of Protestantism taking over in Scotland. And they're on the border between Scotland and England. And um, so they they actually had a room where they hid priests for years and years and years and years and years while it was illegal to be a Catholic there. Um, and and uh, the priest was often just the family tutor because, and this priest would live there, but he would also go off to the neighboring towns to baptize people, et cetera. So, um, and they, they just cool things like they said, well, that you see that, that really thin chasuble that's hanging on the mannequin there, that's just a bed sheet. And so what would happen is if they were going to get raided uh, for being Catholic, they would just put it in with the linens and it just, no one would know any different. Yeah. Uh, I was like, that's so cool. And they had like a little priest hole where the priest could escape through. And it was very, and the Laird herself was just so proudly Catholic. Yeah, that's cool. And someone on the trip asked her, she, like, okay, you guys are Catholic. Are you still practicing? 
She goes, of course, we're stewards. That's what we do. We're, we're, <laughs> it's, it's like, it was just, there was something yeah. really beautiful about this family using their status because they're, they've been aristocrats essentially for a while to support and promote the faith of the church mm-hmm. uh, in that area at great cost to themselves, a great risk to themselves. And it was just something very touching. And I can't quite, it, it was one of those experiences where you know it's really important and beautiful, but you can't describe it much yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's That was that. So there was that. And then the second part was just learning, like, it's interesting to see how Catholicism still is very important in many ways in Scotland. Maybe not in terms as a faith, but like I mean this as in like the Jacobites, the Jacobite cause still has a lot of supporters, if you will, in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did the Loch Ness tour. We heard more about the Jacobites than we did about uh, the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> so uh, it was just very, <laughs> it was very interesting yeah. to see these implicit Catholic connections, and the church has kind of regrown there. Um, Mary Queen of Scots was a very devout Catholic, obviously, and was was killed by uh, his her, her cousin's Saint uh, not Saint uh, Queen Elizabeth the um, First. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I guess that was the unexpected thing. Like I'm like, okay, we're in Scotland, but you know, Protestant. You know, what was his third left of Catholicism? And it was actually quite a lot, and I wasn't yeah. expecting that. And it was really yeah. cool. It's a beautiful country. Very. Oh, and our tour guide Adriana. Uh, I was like, I couldn't figure out her accent right away. So she's Italian from mm-hmm. Turin or Torino, she likes to say. Uh, but she's lived in Scotland for like 30 years. And so she's got okay. an Italian Scottish accent. Fascinating. <laughs> and she was such a delight and she was so great. And there's so much more to say, but that those are kind of some of the high, the brief highlights was, yeah, meeting listeners, hanging out with all these, these 23 people. Um, um, and discovering the depths of Catholicism there that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. But while you were there, you had a, uh, a mission to accomplish for me. Yeah, but yes, yes. What was your mission? Well, there was no mission. I mean, it was out of the charity and generosity of my heart because I paid attention to something you had said once. Uh, I kind of, I kind of like did a a very um, big hint hint to you um, that I really wanted you to grab me some Skittles from Europe uh, because right. uh, they don't have apparently they don't have grapes in Europe. Uh, all the no, grape no, flavored no. candy. No, no, all the grapes are used for wine. <laughs> all the grapes are used for wine, so there's no more grapes left over for candy. And they uh, all the purple candy in Europe apparently is black currant, mm-hmm. which I did not know. I found this out a few weeks ago. Uh, me and some of my friends, some of my friends and I, we go to uh, trivia like twice a month. And one of the categories for trivia was literally Skittles trivia. <laughs> and we aced all 10 questions. We just crushed it. Um, but one of the things that came up that I didn't know, my teammates did, because uh, they're more um, worldly than me, uh, well-traveled and such, was that black currant is a thing. So I've, I've, I do you like black really currant? want to try this. Yeah. You do? No, no, I've uh, never tried it before. Oh, I see. I, I have see. no idea what it tastes like. So, yes. But I need to know. So, while there, I bought three bags of Starbursts, because they also have blackcurrant Starbursts, and mm-hmm. three bags of Skittles, too. But there is a condition. Yes. What's, what's the condition for receiving the gift? 
And that condition is me renewing my passport so I can come visit you. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to get to that this morning uh, before we recorded so I could show you like uh, some sort of like receipt that I sent in my passport, but I didn't have time to get to it. So, But it's definitely very motivating. Yes. So once I see that receipt, I will mail them over. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, um, But so fast, a little other cool thing was one of the guys on our trip used to work for Mars Candy. And so he was telling me about Skittles and how like they were the most complicated candy to make. Really? Yeah, that they can't <laughs> sell them after, within the first two weeks because they're too hard. They need time to soften. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. It was, like, it was just really cool. So, yes. Age Skittles. <laughs> so, yes, there are bags of Skittles and, and Starburst sitting in my rectory awaiting the proof. So the second I see the proof, I will go to the post office and mail them. Okay, that's exciting. <laughs> and uh, today's an exciting episode. Yes. We're going to do something a little different. It's something we've been promising for a while. Today, the entire episode is going to be one big theological emergency. We're going to try to get through as many as we can, uh, your theological emergency. We got a lot last two weeks while uh, Father Harrison was away, so we're going to try to get through those. Um, Also, we're going to have a special guest with us to answer and comment on some of the theological emergencies, producer Indiana. Uh, So she is very excited to be on the show. Uh, Indiana, tell us how excited you are to be on the show. That's wonderful. All right. So, Father Harrison, you ready to jump into this? Let's do it. All right. Thank you for calling Clerically Speaking. If this is truly a theological emergency, please dial 1 at any time. Hi, I flushed my goldfish down the toilet, and I wanted to know, is that a sin? Theological Emergency. We'll take your call at 412 412- Nine one two seven nine nine five. You know, I should tell people because we've been getting a lot of new listeners lately. Um, who producer Indiana is? Because it oh, seems right. odd just to have you know. Uh, so my brother uh, is basically the reason why this podcast exists. He's the one who edits it, makes us sound less stupid, um, and sends out this lovely podcast for yes. all of you listeners. Yes. Uh, long story short, early on, we use this podcast to get my brother a wife. Yeah. And that is producer Riley. So now there it's uh clearly speaking is a family business mm-hmm. and they've had a daughter, 9 months old, and she is producer Indiana. So that's that's a quick catch up for uh, anybody who's up, yes. uh, a little unaware of Essentially, what's going on. Essentially Indiana here. exists because of us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She she owes us when Which she's Which is older. also just insane, yes. but that's yes. pretty much true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to some right. voicemails. Which one are we going for? I just want to start from the top. What's this guy? Uh, no, we're not doing that one. No, we're not doing that one. <laughs> I'm not doing that one. I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> All right, let's see. What's the second one? Hi, fathers. This is Chris from Broomfield, Colorado, and I have a theological emergency. I want to know when is the right time, in fact, when is the perfect time, theologically speaking, for me to sit after communion? In my parish, everyone tends to sit at the very last minute when all the music is done and the priest and deacon are sitting and the priest is about to stand up and give the final blessing. And I, somehow I got it in my head at some point that actually the better time to sit because we're kneeling because of the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist on the altar is when the remains of the uh, body are returned and deposited in the tabernacle. And that that's a good time to sit. But then I realized Usually, at least at my parish, the, the deacon is still there, usually cleaning up 
the altar items, and so there's probably still particles of the body and some of the blood in one of the chalices perhaps at that moment, and maybe I should still be kneeling because um, Christ is still there on the altar. So I can imagine lots of other maybe times that when the, whenever the priest sits um, or when your personal prayer is finished. So I'm sure most of these are fine times to sit, but I want to know what's the ideal time for me to sit after communion. So that's my theological emergency, and I hope you have an answer for me. Thank you very much, fathers. All right. Um, the correct answer is that there is no uh, proper time to sit during the Eucharist. Uh, you should walk to the parish on your knees uh, and remain there as you listen to the Word of God, as you uh, meditate on His Word, as you see the preparation of the altar, offering what is in your heart. Um, you should walk up to the I mean, altar rail, also on your knees. Really should be prostrated and the uh, just time. stay there. Yeah. Okay. We will. Okay, you can prostrate, but that's that's it. There is no there's no sitting down. How dare you sit down in the presence of the king? What is this question? My goodness, I am so disappointed. Do people in other parishes sit down? Like, where would they do that? Where would you even sit on the floor? That makes no sense. This is why the Orthodox have no pews. Exactly. So. <laughs> So the real reason, so, um, okay, so if you're not going to be a holy parish and just kneel the entire time, this is what will happen. If you're one of those parishes that have pews uh, in it, uh, one of these Protestant um, accretions into our good and holy Catholic liturgy, um, if you're if you're a parish like that, which is probably most parishes, and it's fine, it's not a big deal, um, I would say whatever my, whatever the parish does, each parish has its own tradition. And I think one of the big things about this is uniformity in gesture. So whatever is the tradition in your parish, when people stand or sit or kneel, that you do it as one body. Um, now, let's say that you can decide for the entire parish when you would sit or kneel. Um, it makes sense to me. Uh, so in my seminary, we would all stand because they wanted us to stand seventy, whatever. We would all stand until everyone had received communion, and then we could sit down as a kind of a corporate act of receiving communion. Then you sit down. Um, the reason you gave about uh, kneeling in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord while He's on the altar—that makes sense too. Father Harrison, what do you think? If you perfect right. world, you can decide when people kneel and the perfect, sit. When the is perfect, it? the ideal is always to do what the rubrics say. And what do the rubrics okay. say about uh, after receiving communion? It is it is the one part of the liturgy where it is a time of, of private, personal prayer. And so you can do whatever the heck you want. Mm. You can kneel. You can sit. I, I've, I've encountered, actually, it's funny. Someone asked me about this on the trip. So, like, why are people only sitting when you're sitting? I have no clue. It's something I've encountered in different places at different times. I have no idea where it comes from. I'm sure it has something to do with the presence of the blessed sacrament or something like that, or it's a sign of respect with you only sit with the priest is sitting or something like that. But the, the rubrics say, do whatever the heck you want mm -hmm. because it's a time of personal. Pr the only thing I would say is like, you know, if everyone's like sitting and kneeling, maybe don't stand just cause it would just more look awkward. <laughs> it's like, it'd be a distraction. Yeah. Like when, so prior to being a priest, I would often kneel after receiving communion for a bit just to pray. And then yeah. I would sit whenever I felt like it because that's what the book says I can do. And so that's the ideal. The ideal is to do what the rubrics say. That is the, that you want to do your, your theologically perfect thing is to 
do what the church asks us to do. And that is it right there. So, um, I, yeah, I've never understood this whole thing. I, th- I, I think some of it comes from this notion of like respect for the blessed sacrament. Some of it comes out of this notion of respect for the priest. Some of it comes this notion of, of, well, we kind of try to do all this together. Um, but in the end, the rubrics say it's a time. It is the one part of the liturgy of time of private personal prayer. Hmm. So do what you want. And don't and, and I like it. And that, it's one of the very few times we can tell people to do what they want. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as long as it's respectful, respectful. and perfect. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like don't stand up there with your arms out, like cross. You know, as you're hitting people in the head with your in the pews, right? You know, yeah. Like be reasonable, but it's it, yeah. If someone's sitting down in front of you and you're kneeling, don't like breathe into their ear if you can help it. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I love you. Oh, gross. Uh, um, yeah, so just be mindful of people around you. Yes. So if you're sitting down, yeah. maybe you can lean a little bit forward and yeah. just yeah. Let's be, be kind to each other. Exactly. In the pews. Cool. Hi, my name is Peter, and I'm from Idaho, allegedly. I am an occasional listener to of the Clerically Speaking podcast. Love it a lot. Um, and I want to listen to it more. However, I've got like got this problem i get really nervous if i listen to it more regularly would that make me a clericalist um yeah that's 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 my question uh thanks so much god bless and ciao yes next question (laughs) (laughs) yes it would absolutely well this is this is the whole point we're all about clericalism on this podcast this is all the mission yeah the mission is clericalism back yeah Making clericalism great again or something? I don't know. Exactly. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but really, I think in the end, um, how dare you not listen to us every week? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, no, Shame. Shame. Really. You know, how um, do people, and, you know, people have lives? Yeah. Like, we should be the first choice in your life. Absolutely. Because that's what clericalism what is all about. What else are you doing? <laughs> what other podcasts are you listening to? Ridiculous. This is the question. This is the question. Uh, well, here's yeah. the thing. If you're worried about, though, as a layman, becoming a clericalist too much, I, I understand that because you're not ordained. And so how could you ever become a clericalist in that sense, right? So mm. then maybe mm-hmm. balance it out with a good lay podcast, like a, a Taylor Schroll or, or, or um, something like that, you know? Just balance it yeah. out. Get, get some lay voices in there. And, and then you'll be fine. But just make sure you're always choosing you know, the priest first. Yeah. But that being said, you know, clericalism is is you know, a pretty um, sticky subject. And there's a lot of uh, nuance and complications to it. So we'll let Indiana, what is your opinion on uh, clericalism? Wow, that was, uh, that was profound. I mean, theologians are going to write about that answer for generations. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. All right, uh, next question. Hello, this is Dominic, and no, that is not my real name. My question is, is it wrong to be a rad trad? Thanks, fathers. Bye. (laughs) Is it wrong to be a rad trad? Oh, man, this is one of those things where it's like, words can mean different things. And we can get in trouble for saying one thing or another. Exactly. So it all depends on how you interpret rad trad. Um, if you are like how old really is Dominic? Excited, That's my first question. Yeah, Dominic, you should not be asking these questions. This, these are not things you have to worry about, my friend. Just go to mass and pray and stuff. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think the only only people who are on the internet know what even rad trad is, but everyone's on the internet, I guess. Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, what do you mean by rad trad? This is always the question. Yeah. And, and because it's also used as a label against a certain group in a mm-hmm. pejorative sense. Uh, and, and in fact, I, w- I would say that most people who are labeled rad trad would not actually take on that label themselves. They'd say, I'm a traditionalist sure. or something like that. Um, I'm going to answer by saying, by with a non-answer almost, which is to say, mm-hmm. if your form of tradition is rooted only in the past with no notion of development, then that's not good, mm-hmm. right? It's what we call like ossified tradition, right? It's this notion that everything's just kind of rigid in the sense of that there is no sense of development. And at the flip side, if you only have development with no tradition, you only have a future without a past, that's also bad. Um, yeah. The good sense of tradition always is living. And I think that's where people get worried about what would be labeled as rad trad because it can often lead to a form of tradition that's overly textual, treats every magisterial statement as if it's of equal weight and has no notion of development. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not good because that's not the Catholic way. Um, but also like the liberal progressive thing that's everything's always developing and it can always change without any reference to the past is also bad. So good tradition yeah. rec- is rooted in the past and is living towards the future. Uh, rooted always in Christ, who is the Word, who is the tradition of the Church, who gives us the Holy Spirit to vivify us. There you go. So as long as you have that understanding, yeah. uh, Dominic, uh, if that is your real name or not, then uh, well, yeah, go ahead. Call yourself a rad trad if that's fun for you. No big deal. Um, I mean, these labels mean so little. It might start a conversation. What is a radical traditionalist? What do you mean by that? So whatever. Yeah. If you want to call yourself that, I don't care. Yeah. Cool. All righty. And we know that uh, Indiana is a rad trad, though. Some of our opinions about the liturgy are pretty radical. Right, Indiana? Yeah, see, that's why I need to... I'm going to push back a little bit on that, Indiana. I'm not sure if that's really the best way to approach um, the reception of the Eucharist. Um but, you know, it's, a, it's an idea. Okay. Hello, Father. This is Miriam, which is not my real name. But I am calling about the topic of boycotting and kind of what is my, um, or for instance, my Catholic school, responsibility when it comes to uh, not uh, promoting or using a service or purchasing items from companies that have publicly, you know, backed Planned Parenthood or provide money for that. Um, Thank you so much. You guys are the best. Take care. I think actually my first response is I think we, (laughs) I think we give money too much power. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Like we give it a value that I think is almost idolatrous sometimes as Catholics in the sense of like that we think, by buying X, I'm not trying to be like um, going against what, what so-called Miriam is saying. Um, the, mm-hmm. We will call her uh, the Miriam of faith because it's not her real name. So she's not the Miriam mm-hmm. of history. She's the Miriam of faith. <laughs> Sorry. Nice. Bad, bad uh, historical critical joke. Um, anyways, um, I guess what I mean is that we, we seem to imply that 
money has always got this kind of real connecting power to um, moral responsibility. And it does, right? But I think, uh, and there's a reason like why Jesus has very strong words about money though, because he tries to, he's actually trying to quote unquote demythologize money. He's trying to remove, mm-hmm. his, his strong words are to remove its idolatrous focus. That it's there as a means of exchange and that's about all it is, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? It, it does goods and it's how we, but like modernity has really divinized money. Yeah, right? it's an interesting perspective that like kind of the greatest act you can perform is where you put your money. Yes, yes. And there's something about that that's very unhealthy. Right. I never thought about that. Right. Way. So yeah. the, the, this whole notion for the Christian is that really money has its usefulness, but it's very second tier. Yeah, you got to mm-hmm. pay, pay for mortgages and stuff like this, but it's really not as important as we like to think it is. And it's why we shouldn't hold on to it too much. Um I have a whole thing about poverty that I think one day I got to let it simmer, simmer a bit more. Anyways, but so then there's this worry about moral cooperation. Then I buy from this company. Therefore, um, I must be in, in more, uh, we might be in moral peril because of uh, some direct actions of this company. I think in this regard, one, a can use their conscience. Uh, and by this, I mean formed by the church's tradition, not how I think I know right and wrong to be, yeah. but it's always formed first by the magisterium. And the magisterium recognizes that we live in a fallen world. The, because here's the thing. The phone Miriam probably called on was probably built by like slave labor in China. Mm-hmm. The phone people are listening to this podcast. Exactly. The computers, or, whatever you know, it is. Who anything. knows what company, what the company um, streaming service you're using right, right. now for um, listening to and the so, podcast. And this is a principle that actually that came out, and I hate bringing it up because I don't want to, but um, it's a principle that's brought up around the vaccines that I think actually oh, is right. very yeah, helpful, yeah. though, in this regard. It's about moral closeness. Like, I think it where things become more problematic is the is a a company exists like if if you're buying from a company that exists solely to do something like fund planned parenthood then yeah you should not be buying from that company why because your money is actually going to something more it's it's a direct action of of your finances right but the fact is if you're buying like i don't know let's say you buy a, a meal at a restaurant uh, McDonald's, and let's say McDonald's gives like $2 million a year to Planned Parenthood, like a fraction of a cent from each meal is going to Planned Parenthood. It's not, it's not morally significant enough to worry about it. Or, uh, um, so this is the thing, you're, I, I don't, because if you're to actually avoid every company that has some objectively moral evil principles or or funds more the evil things you would have to live on a you'd have to be um what's his name from uh, the good place um doug um anyways the, the calgary guy from you know uh, doug uh, he's like he's trying to live this this perfect life he he drinks his own urine and oh, everything right, right? Yeah, 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 because yeah, yeah. uh doug foresight that's it doug foresight uh where and he's not even that's not enough for him to get into the good place 
because he's just trying like he, he crushes a snail so to make make up for it he walks to Edmonton to give two dollars to charity which is like a three-hour drive it would be like longer for walking you know you'd have to be isolated completely from civilization and, and you wouldn't be able to function the church recognizes this and she recognizes that there are going to be morally evil actions even from larger organizations and institutions that we are not directly responsible for and and i guess the question becomes then if you want to avoid certain companies because of a distant moral evil that you might be cooperating with and it's not really a cooperation though, like then that logic has to apply to every company that you would be buying from. And it becomes a point where it becomes morally crushing and it becomes impossible to live. So I think where we need to work, we put to put the moral worry then to summarize is those more direct forms of funding. It's not to say that we shouldn't do what we can about these other things. It's not to say that we can't make choices once in a while to help be a profit against this um it's the more direct stuff so like you know if you were giving directly to Planned Parenthood or you're you know then that would be a problem that would be a problem I think but yeah you know most of these companies say they're giving to these organizations but they don't give a lot and and the money that you've bought in from that company is so negligible that it, it's not yeah, more than serious and it's not money. just the negligible amount of money that's yeah. going to it it's it's um the moral distance that you have from the decision mm-hmm. that you are not deciding where that money goes to. Um, so the, the example I bring up all the time with this sort of thing is, let's say you're a janitor at a hospital and that hospital performs abortions. Are you morally culpable for those abortions as a janitor? No. Let's say you're at a hospital and you are um, you work in anesthesia and you are asked to do anesthesia for this uh, abortion procedure. Uh, you're not actually performing the abortion. Uh, are you morally culpable? Absolutely yes uh, in that situation. Because without you doing that thing, the abortion could not happen. Uh, so you see that there's a distance in there. Now, that being said, and you talked about this a little bit. Let's say you are um, a janitor working at a hospital. And you know that the hospital performs abortions. But, you know, it's a good place to work. You're making money. You're doing good work, you know, with your job and everything. And over time, you begin to think, well, you know what? It because of your situation and because you're getting money from this, over time you would think, well, maybe abortion isn't that big a deal. Right. That somehow about the closeness to the evil, um, even without participating, can start to wear away on your soul. Mm-hmm. But that's an individual um, discernment kind of thing, right? Uh, so it might be good for you personally, even though you're not morally culpable for working there, it might be good for you personally to remove yourself from that job. See how there's a distinction there, a difference there? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you may decide that like there are certain companies that because of the way they have vocally uh, spoken about abortion or something else, like I'm just not going to mm-hmm. um, contribute to those companies. And that can be a good moral thing for you to do. Uh, that's mm-hmm. kind of that's that part is the following of your conscious part. And um, if that's what the Lord has you know put onto your conscience and that's what conscience is telling you, then you, you need to follow that. Yeah. Um, so even though in a broad sense, it might be acceptable for you, it is unacceptable and right. you have to follow that. That's fine. And, and you just have to recognize, I think where these questions come from, because we also recognize, and I do think this is a problem of how all encompassing certain companies get in with life. Like it's almost impossible for anyone to live without Amazon now. Right. But they're going to pay to send 
uh, employees to get abortions to other states if they want to, right? Like, it, it, right. And I think that's why, because they don't want to pay the medical insurance. They don't want to have to add another person to the plan, all these different things, which is even more yeah. evil, right? Like, it's just, it's not good. Uh, so it's all about, again, it's it's actually these companies worship money. Um, mm-hmm. And so this, but this is why the church says, like, in the end, it, you're fine to order from Amazon. But if you're, if you know, like what I'm trying to do more and more is like, if I can get something locally, even if it's a few bucks more, I'll do it. Yeah. Because I think that's really important. But, um, but I also know a lot of the books I want to get, I can't get without Amazon pretty much anymore because they own every big used bookseller out there. <laughs> like it's just, it's yeah. a, it becomes an impossibility for where I live. Is that good? No, but it's like, it's, it's the reality and I'm not going to be in a morally dangerous position from buying from there. Um, right. I'll just say one more thing, yeah. you know, because it's, you can see there's a lot of nuances yeah. about this question, but you know, there's a prisoner that I have who is working on this, um, uh, project. Basically it's a system where you can input where you're putting all of your money, stocks, bonds, all this stuff, what companies you're invested in. And it'll give you a score based on, uh, faith, like which, how much of the money do these companies give to things that are against the Catholic faith? And it'll give you a score and to help people understand where their money is going to. And what's good about that is that, you know, if there is kind of more and more of a widespread movement um, to avoid putting money into these companies because of their policies, there's a chance that over time those can begin to shape those policies Mm -hmm. and change them. Uh, So this is working on multiple levels, this sort of thing. Um, So there you go. Yeah. Hey there, fathers, my name is Thomas. I have a question about the seal of confession and how far that extends to like getting to know the priest that you confessed to. Um, I appreciate your takes on confession should be say the sins, get the absolution, leave. Um, but not all priests like that. And, um, sometimes you end up in a conversation with, with the priest and they're asking just, about I've had the experience where we talk about life or they ask about what's going on in my life and then that conversation carries over into the next meeting with them and so that's my question is after the confession after the absolution uh when does the seal stop applying and when is it okay for that priest to then take that information as non-sealed. Is it just the sins that are sealed? Is it the whole conversation that's behind the confessional door? Uh, yeah, anyway, thanks for the help. God bless. Yeah, that's actually why we have uh, confessionals, uh, because the confessional door actually creates the, the seal. So that's where the word comes from. It's this secret <laughs> box. Everything that's said in the box is secret forever. Oh, um, so if you <laughs> confess Only to your priest outside, it's fair game, fair game. Only ever believe <laughs> half of what Father Anthony says, folks. <laughs> I just the idea of that. I'm not mocking our, our question. And yeah, I guess there would be a problem too. Me. Is like yes, because if, if the door's not properly closed, then you've got a loose right? seal. Uh-huh. Don't wear a, a yellow seal, bow tie <laughs> into the ocean. Loose seal, okay, loose okay. seal. Sorry, Arrested Development joke. Sorry. All right, all right. Okay, so um, I think we got Father Harris. I believe we got corrected about this um, oh. from some canon lawyers. Okay. Um, about the seal of confession. Okay. Uh, a while ago. Okay. So my understanding is that you can never 
reveal a sin in a way that would tie the sin to an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I say in the homily, like, you know, so many people come to me in the confessional and they uh, confess gossip. Mm-hmm. Have I broken the seal of confession? No. Um, and also, this is important because before um, we were given permission uh, for this, if somebody were to commit the sin of abortion or other excommunicable sins, we would need to get permission to recommunicate them. I'm using the wrong language. Okay. Um, but you would have to do this weird thing where you would call either your diocese or the chancery or something, and you would you would give the conf- like you would give the confessee like a number to remember and like or something. It was really weird. So it could be completely and utterly anonymous, and you would kind of reschedule an appointment with the confessee so that you could um, fix that problem. I'm using all kinds of wrong okay. words, and the canon lawyers are getting cranky with me right now. Uh, but there was something weird like that. Now, now, pretty much, I think every priest has permission to just through absolution uh, recommunicate people uh, who have been excommunicated. So now I'm pretty sure that every priest has permission. Yeah, we have. Uh, we don't need to like yeah. do it. Anyways, yeah. yeah, yeah. So all that. Okay. So I say all that, and like I said, I um, using imprecise language. Um, as far as the seal goes, uh, it's within the sacrament, so it's not within the space. Yes. And I'm saying all this because also priests usually go above and beyond when it comes to keeping the seal. Yeah. Just in case. Um, priests will not like usually say anything about whatever is said in the confessional. So certainly when it's within, it's within the sacrament, you shouldn't repeat anything uh, just in case it would give away uh, who the person is. Um, now, it, it's tough because you begin to recognize voices sometimes in, in the confessional. I don't know who this person is, but I know this voice. Um, I, I personally never initiate a conversation based on what I think this voice said previously mm-hmm. because that's kind of taking away the privacy that they want. If they bring something up and I actually remember it, maybe I'll respond, but a lot of times I don't even remember it. Mm-hmm. So it's tough. Father Harris, I, I've been babbling. So go so, ahead. So, okay, a couple things here. I think one is, yes, you're right. We go above and beyond because like there's two things. You need two things to happen to break the seal. You need to be able, you need to reveal to the person. You need to be, it needs to be reveal the person and their sin. So like you said, if I'm preaching, you know, I hear a lot of sins about gossip or something like that. You're not doing anything to break the seal there because you're not revealing anyone in particular. You can't, you can't tie a sin to a person. Right. And I try very hard to like, I even have given my staff, you know, when someone makes an appointment, if someone wants to make an appointment for a confession for whatever reason, which, you know, doesn't actually happen too much. Most people show up at the time, but if someone does that use us, you know, don't, just um, use this phrase because I don't even want it to be in the calendar that so-and-so came to me for confession because then there's like a digital imprint of that that can get tied. But like, I, you know, you don't, not, these are very almost, these are very minute things, but let's say, I don't know, let's say someone, let's say someone confessed to me a murder spree and I had in my calendar that so-and-so came for confession and then my phone gets subpoenaed by the lawyers and they asked me, what, what did I say? And I said, I can't tell you. Uh, it's under the seal. If I can't actually even comment on what you're talking about yeah. because I can't affirm or deny whether someone came to me, blah, blah, blah. Right. So there's just, it's a lot of, I, I'm more protective in many ways than in regards to who over the what. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's a tough thing. And I think, 
I think there is some implied stuff in a relationship between a priest and a penitent. Like I have some directees who come to me for confession. I'll say, just say it's you. And do I have permission to talk to you about that in spiritual direction? And they'll always, most of the time will say yes. Yeah. And I, so there are ways priests can make sure the seal is being respected. And mm-hmm. because a person can, I don't want to force them to, if they don't want to, that's fine. But, um, I just want to make sure they have, they understand they have their rights as a penitent. Um, so that, but it also just helps me to know where they're at. I don't, may not necessarily bring it up in spiritual direction, but it, so I think, and, and there are, yeah, you have those regular penitents where maybe you've talked to them also outside of confession about the same thing. And you, it's hard. I don't know if it's, and you're actually not, you're, you're, it's not to my knowledge, it's not wrong to bring up stuff from a previous confession within confession. Mm-hmm. So, because it's all under the seal, it's all under the same seal. So I think that uh, those things, I guess where it gets scary is where things start to bleed between they talk yeah. to you in confession, they talk to you in spiritual direction, they're talking to you after mass one day. That's where, and that's where I'm usually like, okay, there's too much getting jumbled here. I need to talk to them. Um, mm-hmm. And you also remember there has to be intent. <laughs> yeah. To break, I think in this regard, to break the seal. Uh, I mean, um, I've, I've encountered some things with priests where I've been like, this is a little too close for my comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, it's not easy. It's not, um, the seal is maybe not as strict as we might like to often think it is. Uh, but it's also not as loose as some priests make it to be. <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. I, I think if there's a relationship established, there is some implied sense of, and really, and this is the one thing I'm not sure on. I'm still trying to figure mm-hmm. it out is if someone brings up stuff outside, like that's not really confessible in confession. Is like that weird, but not a sin or, or just, you know, Oh yeah. Well, my kid just had a baby or something like that. Is that bound by the seal itself too? Mm. And I'm not sure. I don't think so, but I'm not sure. So that's, that's my way. Of, and I, so I just, in the end, priests always, always err towards caution without being overly yeah. scrupulous. So, um, it's a babbling question. Two things. One, if Ed Condon still listens to this podcast, uh, message me and, uh, tell me what I was trying to say earlier. Uh, but also bottom line, bottom line, bottom line about all this steel of confessional stuff is that no priest is ever going to reveal that you committed a sin mm-hmm. and it, from the confessional, you know, it's just not going to happen. So, be at peace with all that, okay? Word. Maybe we complicated that more. Indiana, can you simplify this for us? <laughs> See, there you go. There you I go. think that's that's better that's said than what I could do. Yeah. Hey, so this is Bree, and I have a brief question. But basically, if you have a baggie of a bunch of relics, and they are touching each other, and they don't have anything around them, then is everything technically a multi-class relic? Like if you have a relic of St. Padre Pio and it happens to touch like Therese, is St. Therese now technically like a third class? And then also additionally, is the plastic bag that everything is in, is that now also like a third class relic or can that be disposed of like in the trash? Does it have to be burned? You definitely don't want to bury plastic. Would this be a good reason to use cloth bags? 
that can be burned and buried. Lots of multi-questions there. Have fun. That's great. I am going to have fun with this question because there's a lot there. First of all, I love the idea of relics multi-classing. Um, like they're in a D&D game. Like I'm going to class in like first class Padre Pio and third class um, Therese of Lisieux. Yeah, so I think we might want to um, uh, consult the D&D 5e book to see what multi-classing relics, uh, how that exactly works. Um, but a few things with this. Uh, you will... I don't think I've ever seen a relic in a plastic bag. Uh, relics, I mean, there's a very important thing that like, they're supposed to be in reliquaries, which are these, you know, containers usually made out of precious metals to avoid this problem. And glass to see uh, them and everything, yeah. And glass to see them and all that jazz. Um, because I think, you know what, if, if you had a, a first class relic in a plastic baggie, you got to burn that guy. Um, or even, even destroy the environment a little bit. I would say absolutely. As far as... The transferring, like, can you have a first-class relic that's also a third-class relic of somebody else? You know what? That's a great question. I'm just going to say straight up no, because the first-class nature of it, like being a bone from Padre Pio, uh, surpasses the fact that uh, you would not venerate a part of Padre Pio because it touched a relic of Therese of Lisieux. That would make no sense veneration-wise. Right. Um, so no, you don't. You can't get multi-classing uh, of relics. Yes, I, I just love that idea. Okay. So yeah, I. There also needs to be some sense of intention there, especially when it comes to creating a third-class relic. And B, well, for, and also really the only people who are supposed to be holding first-class relics are clerics. Um, mm -hmm. So and churches and stuff like they're not meant for private. I've actually been confused by this because I see a lot of lay people having like first class relics. I'm like, how? This mm -hmm. is not supposed to be happening. Um, um, but yeah, there has to be intention there. Uh, you're right, Father Anthony, like them touching each other doesn't make them more, but also like, yeah, they're in reliquaries. They're not necessarily even touching anyways. So yeah. uh, um, I would not ever put them in the plastic bag, but if somehow, some way they ended up in that, you can just throw the bag away because it's not, it is not holy because it's touched relic queries that are holding a relic. Um, and again, there has to be intention behind this for third class relics. You know, I, I, I get it. Like it's nice to so have this cloth that touched the, the body of a holy person. That's great. <laughs> um, but really, yeah, I, I think it's not that hard. Just, just, um, just, just treat relics with respect. Although, can I, can, I, can I throw something in here just quickly about relics in general? I've yeah, learned sure. a bit more about like how relics are often broken apart and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And I am appalled. I'm almost like, I found, so okay. I'm just going to say it because. Story time? Story time. I, when I was at Notre Dame, I found this out that there's like, I guess there's this order of nuns in Rome that do a lot of splitting up of relics. And they have this like gelatin solution that they boil like a bone into. And it dissolves the bone into the gelatin solution. And then that's what they put in reliquary. So you get a little bit of the bone each time. And I find that incredible. Like when I heard that, I'm like, I really hope that's not the case. Because if that's the case, I find that actually like really disrespectful to the remains of the person. Um, but I'm also like, this sounds like something Catholics would do. And so like, it's one of those, I believe and I don't believe it at the same time. Um, because the whole point of the relic is that you're you have a piece of someone who has been who's a saint 
whose whose body mm-hmm. itself is holy. It's been sanctified. It's 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 touched God in a very intimate way, and so we need to treat them with better respect in that sense. Which is why actually clerics are supposed to be the 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 protectors, if you will, of of of, of, of uh, relics. Do you have any relics? Uh do I mean our my parish does? Okay. Um, I've got two. Yeah. Uh, oh, I have um, Vincent de Paul somewhere around here. Yeah. Um, no, actually, I think I left him at the last parish. I didn't bring any of my uh, relics with me. Okay. I, I left him at the parish. Okay. Um, so I have a piece of the True Cross, mm-hmm. and I've got a the only relic that's available is Saint Edith Stein, which is a piece of her wedding dress that she used for her final vows. Cool. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. But th- I mean, this yeah. is a question that kind of bothers people sometimes. Yeah. Is how is the distribution of relics not disrespecting the body? Yeah. Uh, and. I think it has to do with intent. So, like, how is this different than cremating someone and spreading their ashes, right? Right. Because the cremation and spreading of ashes, uh, you are actually doing the opposite where there's no place to reverence the body. Yeah. Um, That's just gone, scattered, you know, to the four winds. Um, Whereas this distribution of relics is... Now, that being said, if someone were to tell me, you know what... Our medieval brothers and sisters kind of went crazy with relics and they chopped up all the bodies and we don't want to do that anymore. Uh, I'd be okay with that answer mm-hmm. too. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe we just need more pilgrimages and less uh, right. <laughs> little pieces of bone everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm open to that answer as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to both as well. It's very tempting to start treating relics uh, and other fun Catholic stuff as Catholic magic. Yes. And we have to not do that. Yes. Because that's not good. That's not good. It's not like a magical talisman that works independent of faith. Yeah. Um, that has like special properties. Um, it, these all things are things that only um, work with within uh, faith. Yes. Um, but I love the question. That was a fun one. Anything else? Uh, well, I mean, we're kind of up in an hour, aren't we? Are I, we? I think. Oh, I yeah. think. I think okay. we need we need a summary from producer. Oh, Indiana. you know what? Yeah, because all of these questions kind of tie into a deeper theological point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think there's no one better to to summarize that and kind of tie the whole show together. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, Indiana, if you could just do that for us, and just any last words for the people. Amazing. Well, well, there you go. I mean, Couldn't have said it better. I mean, doctor of the church right there. I mean, they, we'll give her some time. But, I, I don't uh, know the babes, right? Yeah, you know, if she doesn't get into any, like, you know, sometimes her speculative theology worries me a little bit. But overall, she seems pretty solid with what she's uh, doing. she reading too much Ronner? You know, I, she's still young in her studies. I think the Ronner thing is just a phase. She'll, she'll get past it. Thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. Also, a special thanks to producer Nick, because getting all those files for our questions is going to be a little extra work for him. So thanks, producer Nick. You're the best. You can find me looking at even more of our theological emergencies. You can find me on Twitter at FR Harrison. 
Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericalspeaking at gmail.com. Do you have a theological emergency? Call 412-912-7995. That's 412-912-7995. Indiana will not be available to answer all of our theological emergencies. She's a very busy producer. She's got a lot of things, a lot of plates in there that she's working on. So, so don't expect that Indiana's going to answer your questions, but we will do our best to answer your questions. Peace. God bless.